morning. I'd like us to, uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to Isaiah 55. And that's where we were going to be part of a long, poetic passage um, of, uh, of Israel, of uh, Isaiah's kind of uh, proclamation of um, what it's like to enjoy the presence of God. Now, uh, this passage is a long one, and I, I like that. It's full of powerful metaphors, uh, really, in an or and there are sections here, and we'll break this down a little bit so that we can metabolize it. There's an oracle of prophetic imagination that opens uh, with God's own speech to us. There's an exhortation that Isaiah gives, and there are words that, of promise that follow on uh, in this passage. And the poetry here in these passages is kind of helps us to slow down a little bit in our reading and engage us a little more holistically. It helps us to become more open to its message. Now, some of us find poetry very accessible, very easy to metabolize, you know, to kind of stew on. Other, others of us may find poetry really challenging. Um, we may find the words and images less accessible and they just kind of roll forward and we lose track and kind of disconnect a little bit. It sounds either flowery or, or kind of religious language here. Um, I really want us uh, this morning to kind of go th through this kind of slowly and simply um, because the poetry here is meant to help us open up to what uh, the message of God is to us. Uh, Israel at the time, still even to this day, loves poetry. Hebrew is a poetic language. It's full of symbols and depth and meaning. So let's, let's kind of uh, embrace this together. Um, the, uh, the oracles and prophecies of Isaiah are written just prior to the exile of Israel into Babylon. So if you remember a little bit of the history we've talked about here in, in, in the Old Testament, Israel is gathered as a nation um, for some time, but they have wayward kings very often. Not always, but often. And Israel struggles during this period of time with idolatry, temptation to, to kind of connect into the culture around them. They're a small country surrounded by really powerful countries, and so they're nervous a lot of the time. And uh, they get tempted to, uh, to kind of make alliances with the powers either to the north and the south um, or around to the east and, and to try to give them a sense of security. So there's a lot of complexity there that kind of drowns out the significance of their relationship with the, the one true God. So um, they're not doing too well during this period of time. They're, they're involved in, again, idolatry, and we'll come back to that a little bit. They're, they're making alliances with their neighbors to try to give them a sense of security. And Isaiah is trying to call them back to fidelity, um, to the God who knows them. Um, and uh, it wouldn't go very well. It wouldn't be long after uh, Isaiah's ministry that, that Israel does go into exile. That means they get kicked out of their land and they go into these foreign territories. And actually, the prophecies of Isaiah are very helpful even to the people in exile because Isaiah is able to cast a vision of the future. And that's why poetry is so important because he's describing things um, that are, uh, that are imagined. So we gotta exercise our imagine, uh, imagination. So in our passage, uh, it, well, our passage picks up on some of these themes. There's, there's Israel's idolatry that's addressed. There's judgment of false powers, the proclamation of God's reign. 
But very notably, there's the beauty of the new world that's the vision is cast here. So um, as we start into Isaiah chapter 55, uh, what we find here first is an oracle from God. So this is Isaiah's kind of transmitting the message, but really God is the speaker here. And our, pa our passage begins with a really impassioned call of direct address by God. Now, if you, I grew up in a church where we read the King James Bible, which uh, has its disadvantages, but it certainly had its advantages too. And one of them was it really kind of captured some of the poetic language. And, 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 and the, the, the King James that I memorized really captures the Hebrew poetry here. There's a Hebrew word that just ho, ho everyone. Maybe that sounds familiar to you if you've grown up the church. Ho everyone who thirsts, come to the water. And uh, the, the translation we use uh, here this morning in the English Standard Version tries to capture some of that uh, by emphasizing things differently. Come is the first word we have here. Um, come everyone who thirsts, come to the water. So our translation repeats this word come twice to, for emphasis. In the Hebrew, it starts out with this kind of impassioned cry of God, ho, everyone who thirsts. So in the Hebrew, what's put first is this almost guttural vocalization of God, hey, we would say in our, <laughs> in our jargon, you know, hey, Ho, oh, everyone who thirsts, come. I, I'm just trying to capture that sense in, in which there's, there's, there's real emotion going on here. God isn't just kind of using flowery speech. He's, he's saying to his own people, ho, oh, everyone who thirsts. It's an appeal to those who thirst right off the bat attuning and naming the thing that's the problem. And then what's next? Everyone who uh, come by and eat without price to him who has no money. So uh, right off the bat, God is kind of identifying to his people their condition. Thirsty ones, needy ones. It's an appeal to those who thirst and to those who are poor. Thirst and lack of personal resources are really the only qualifications for those whom God invites to the feast. I think we are all well qualified. Note that God here does not begin with the question that comes in verse 2, why do you spend your money? And you'll note that God often starts his discourses with a question, but not here. And he does not start with an exhortation that you'll find like in verse seven, let the wicked forsake his way. You can imagine a discourse from God starting like that, but this doesn't. In this oracle, he's not starting with a question and he's not starting with an exhortation. He's starting with an invitation. He doesn't move to the word of critique. He doesn't demand righteousness at the beginning in this case, rather, First, we hear God's attuning to his people's condition by naming it. Ho, everyone who is thirsty. He's offering us the opportunity to acknowledge it. Some of us are aware of our thirst and our poverty, but many of us are not until it's named and brought to the surface and acknowledged. Do you ever 
been with a child when you can tell there's something right on the surface there, they're, they're disturbed, but they're, they're trying not to say it. And then as soon as you say, oh, honey, are you okay? And then all of a sudden the tears, tears start to come because no, they're not okay, uh, right? Um, this is what's happening here. We are desperately thirsty and we're really poor. And God is saying, hey, are you okay? Yeah, no, we're not okay. But God is offering us something here, and he can't get us to receive it if our hands are closed, if we're not able to acknowledge our need. And so there's no point in going forward here if our default mode is, I'm fine, I'm doing just okay. God has something to offer here, and the first thing he does is to name the need. And what he's offering here are waters plural. Um, and there's, this is just a little cup. This is kind of a refreshing, an expansive image, a well, a river. You, you might think of Psalm 23, where you're, you're talking about a pasture that he leads you beside still waters. And what he offers is fullness and fruitfulness. This is wine and milk. Wine and milk are, are, are images of, of, of uh, fatness, to use another Old Testament word. It's fruition in an agricultural culture like, their, like theirs. Wine and milk are the expression of the fruitfulness of, of your vineyards and the fatness of your cows. All freely offered with a passionate invitation. And it is sad that many of Isaiah's countrymen were responding, nope, I'm good, I got this covered. And that's why God presses in a little bit for, uh, more with the question in verse two. Why are you spending your money for that which is not bread? Now, this is a really interesting term, not bread. That's just exactly what it says in the Hebrew. Not bread is an interesting term. It's a negative of bread. I don't know what not bread is. God doesn't go into great detail. Now, I could extrapolate. In fact, I spent a long time kind of going into this metaphor, and I stripped it all out because I don't want to, like, overcomplicate this here. It's the negative of bread. Whatever it is, it's not named I suspect that this is not because God couldn't think of a word because other passages in scripture <laughs> detail this out for us. But he doesn't even want to name the corrupt alternatives in the context of his beautiful offer. It's just not bread. He calls out its emptiness. It's not even worth naming. It's vanity, to use the word from Ecclesiastes. Here, he wants only to lift up the beauty of his offering. He wants to entice us with beauty, inspire us with generosity and freedom. Are we thirsty? Are we hungry? Are we needy? Are we wasting our resources on not bread? For me, I feel these things kind of uh, by feelings of being overwhelmed by my circumstances, perhaps numb or bored. Perhaps we are disappointed with the past and present, or perhaps we're afraid of what might happen next. Perhaps we feel alone. Perhaps we don't know what to do. Perhaps we la lack a sense of security or a sense of control. There are all kinds of ways that we experience thirst and it can be any one of those things. Actually, it was helpful for me to 
discover the word numb because I often didn't know what I was feeling. And I realized there's a name for that. It's called being numb. And being numb means I don't really am not in really in touch with myself. Just kind of a condition all on its own. We are thirsty people. That's because we live in a broken world. And that's when we become vulnerable to not bread alternatives. And there are many, many of them in our culture. And we can just go on. Again, it was tempting to go into a kind of critique of our culture, but I, I just don't know if that's the message for us this morning. I want to keep it simple. I don't know what's making you thirsty necessarily this morning, but I know you are thirsty. I don't know what your not bread alternative is. And you know in America there are many not bread alternatives. I don't know if I need to go into great detail. God is naming them, I think, because they are close to the surface. And he wants to be able to answer these for us. I think also, rather than just talking about them this morning, I think we should ask these questions in prayer, which is one of my words of exhortation to us this morning. Why? The question does not come from a place of personal introspection. Right? In other words, Isaiah's not just wondering about our condition, and he's not asking people to think about it. Remember who's speaking here. God himself is speaking. And the question does not come from a place of personal introspection or even through the word of Isaiah, but from God our Father. And it's important to hear it from him. It's one thing for me to say or Isaiah or somebody else in church or to say, are you thirsty? It's another thing for God himself to ask you personally, hey, are you thirsty? When he asks the question, it's a different experience. And that's why I think we need to ask this question in prayer, to hear the question in prayer. It's important to hear it from him and to give our answer to him directly. Otherwise, we're prone to self-diagnosis. I know what's wrong with me. And we're prone to self-help. I know what's wrong with me, and therefore I know how to solve the problem. That's the not bread alternatives. It just not, it's just a, it's a, it's just a, a, a lot of wasted time. <laughs> and that's why I want to be careful by getting too much detail. I want to encourage you to sit in prayer and hear the Lord say to you, are you thirsty? Are you poor? Are you hungry? And I want you to be able to say to God, yes, here's what it feels like. Here, God is placing his finger on Israel's need for him. It, this, isn't, this is different than just stop being idolaters and be more righteous. This is a different kind of thing. God's putting his finger on Israel's need for him. That's what makes God different than all of the other alternatives is that he's personal. Here, God is opening his heart and he's giving this gracious invitation. He's expressing his desire. So there's no need to complicate this. It's just good for us to hear God asking the question and for us to name it before him personally. Okay, so what if we say, okay, God, I'm all in. 
I'm going to buy, I'm buying and eating. What are we doing when we do that? <laughs> How do I say yes to this? Okay, I'll eat. What, what do I do now? Well, there is some help here because first of all, what we do is we listen. We listen. Verse 2, listen diligently to me. In Hebrew, it, the, the way you say listen diligently, you just repeat the word twice. Listen, listen. And then again in verse 3, there's this incline your ear. In other words, move your head. So you can see there's a level of intensity here. Okay, listen, listen. You know, lean in. Right? Don't have a stiff neck. You know, loosen up a little bit. You know, I've been doing my chiropractor's exercises. It's very uncomfortable, very weird. Um, my wife made me go see the chiropractor because I had back problems. And, uh, I, I'm learning how to get a little looser, right? Um, I have exactly the same experience in prayer. <laughs> it takes me a while to get a little loose and bend the neck and, and lean in and listen. Listen. Listening is, first of all, an interruption in my own stubbornness and resistance. I, I have to stop talking to myself. I have to stop talking to God. Most of all, because most of my talking is self-justifying, explaining things, you know, mansplaining. Of course, it's not just men who explain things, as we know. We all do this. There is a word of repentance here. Okay, remember, repentance is turning aside. Remember, this is, we're talking about some act, active stuff here. Leaning in with our ears, turning aside. We'll hear this word of repentance in verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his ways, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. So we'll just focus for a minute in our thoughts part of this. All right, ways are important too, but in order to listen, we have to stop talking. We have to repent of the kind of momentum of self, you know, of the, the momentum of non-bread self-satisfying. All right, we, we just do this. I mean, a good metaphor, or a good example is just that, you know, scrolling on our cell phones all the time. Like, it just be, it's becoming a neurological habit. Like, we're doing this now. You know, um, whenever I travel and I stand in lines, you got to stand in line at the airport or stand in line before the elevator or stand in line to, you know, the phones are out. It's like nobody can just stand there and wait for the elevator anymore. You know, I remember my, my aunt, she's a smoker, and uh, whenever the phone would ring, she had to light a cigarette. It just, it, because she didn't know how long she was going to be on the phone. So if she could not find her cigarettes, it was kind of funny because the phone would ring. She'd be running all over the house, not answering the phone, but looking for her cigarettes. All right? I think about that a lot now. It's funny because that's what I do with cell phone. You know? Oh, I got to wait for a cup of coffee. Where's my cell phone? You know, if any time I have like three minutes, I got to have a cell phone. It's a, you know, we do this in prayer. We, we're just inclined towards it. That's, those are kind of innocuous things, but, but these become terrible addictions and alternatives when what we're doing is we're drowning out the voice of God. So we have to stop talking. We have to listen. 
Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his, his thoughts. Why? God says, because my thoughts are not your thoughts. Um, my wife is in a study group uh, um, through St. John's. They're reading uh, Kierkegaard. And uh, she discovered a little book I'd never heard of before. Um, he has a little meditation on the lily of the valleys. The lily, sorry, the lilies of the valley. And Kierkegaard talks about silence and about listening. And he says this. Um, he's talking about uh, a person who uh, you know, a person who is like the lily of the valleys. He became what is even more the opposite of talking than silence. In other words, let me, that's a little clunky. Here, let me, is it, what is the opposite of talking? The opposite of talking is not silence, Kierkegaard says. It's listening. This person had thought that to pray is to talk. He learned that to pray is not only to keep silent, but to listen. To listen not to oneself, but to wait until the person who prays hears God. That's listening. Kierkegaard identifies the second aspect of listening, which is essential. It's relational. It's an encounter with God. We listen to until we, uh, we, we listen not to hear oneself, but we wait until we hear God. This is what God is saying in verse 2. Listen diligently to me. Incline your ear and come to me. This is relational. So listening and encountering lead not just to a receiving of something, uh, but an enjoying of it. God describes our encounter with him as eating what is good. A, a very deep Hebrew word, uh, good. It's hard to, good is like the way it ought to be. Eating what is good, delighting ourselves, our souls, in other words, the deepest inner parts of ourselves, in rich food, even life itself. He says, even our souls shall live. So what God is inviting Israel into is an enjoyment of him that comes when we're able to quiet ourselves and to listen to what he has to say. So I'm asking ourselves, are we making space and time to quiet ourselves? Are we making space and time to stop talking and to listen? It might be a good idea to wake up with a moment of silence before God, rather than rushing off right away. Just five minutes. Stop talking and set before our imagination this table that God has set before us with rich food. Listen. What is it that God wants to share with us when we're listening like this? What is the rich food that he's talking about? Of course, it's himself, but it's himself saying something to us. It's himself showing us. It's, his, it's himself revealing something. And what that is is a word of promise. Verse 4, I make of, uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, verse three in the middle, I will make of you an everlasting covenant. Now, this word of promise discloses to the listener that God himself 
will provide all the things that the false gods and the foreign armies could not provide with their not bread. So our not bread alternatives, technology, entertainment, addictions, substances, money, health, all, all that stuff. Um, God is saying, I will provide all that you need that all the not bread was kind of covering up. This word of promise that he's giving is the covenant that God makes with Israel and activates through his anointed leader personified by King David. Now, again, I know for us, these metaphors, again, may sound kind of abstract or flowery because we're so distant, but they didn't to Israel. Water, wine, milk, these, for them, those were as accessible as if I were to say, you know, when I talk about the cell phone. Right. For them, these were concrete realities. They were not poetic, flowery things. Same thing with David. It's like talking about Abraham Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation or something like that. This is very real for them. They know David, their glorious king, the messianic king. And you'll notice that he's the object of God's love. This is emotional language here. He's saying uh, in verse 3, my everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. It was his delight to raise David up as a witness to all the nations that here was a leader and a commander with authority to gather all the people under his good reign. And that through his beloved commander, God would fulfill his promise that through Israel and the nations, there would be blessing. And that in their blessing, God would be glorified. What kind of blessing? Well, this is the blessing of all things being made the way they're supposed to be. This is a word of promise, actually, that bears directly on us. And by us, I mean Gentiles. I don't want this to escape our notice here. Most of us, I'm assuming, are Gentiles here. For in this passage, we're listening in on God's word to Israel. So he's talking to Jewish people here. And his word to the Jewish people is that, hey, remember how I made a promise that through what I do for you, Jewish people, even the Gentiles all over the world, are, they're going to be a part of the blessing. All right? He's talking about us here. Our ears should be tingling, right? because that's what happened. The promise uh, to Israel of the Davidic king extends to us Gentiles, and now we here in Annapolis are part of what God is doing to glorify his name, that his promises are kept. We take our place in the covenant family to experience God's love and, and to participate in the outflowing of that promise. It's what Jesus calls the kingdom of God. So. It's not that this promise is abstract. You and I are standing and sitting here this morning because that promise is fulfilled. That's real. That's as concrete as you and me here. I mean, think about it. Now, we know that this Davidic king that God is talking about, the object of, God, of God's love, is made manifest especially through the reign of Jesus. That's why we call him our Messiah. Messiah is Hebrew for anointed one. He's the king. He's the beloved one. And when we hear Isaiah's voice break in on verse 6, so now when we get to verse 6, this is the end of God's speech, and now Isaiah kind of comes in with his exhortation. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Like, 
yeah. You know, Isaiah's listening to what God is saying, and God is saying, hey, seek me. And now Isaiah is saying, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do it, Israel. Seek the Lord while he may be found. So now Israel's being like the pastor, all right? He's preaching here in 6 and 7, and he's saying, hey, people, let's do it. Let's return to him. And he's anticipating what the response might be, right? He's anticipating people saying, yeah, I, I blew it already. I mean, you know, just yesterday, Isaiah, I was there, you know, at the altar of the pagan god. Or worse, I was in the house of the, you know, the temple you know what. And Isaiah says, yeah, so let the wicked forsake his ways and stop thinking about that because God is rich in compassion and he will abundantly pardon. That's Isaiah's sermon. In other words, this relationship that God's holding out to us that nobody deserves and that we blow perpetually all the time with our not bred sinful activities, that's what God is saying. Look, I'm, I get it. It's good that you repent. But now let me communicate to you the thoughts that I have, which is that I can abundantly pardon. And we know that because Jesus came and he took care of it. Isaiah says that we are to seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. That's essentially God's, uh, Jesus' name, Emmanuel, God with us. And that's what Jesus says and what we've been sharing here uh, over the last couple uh, months. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. My yoke is easy. Jesus will say, I am the bread of life. I am the source of water that springs up. I am these good gifts for you. So it's through the Messiah Jesus that the compassion and pardon come. It's made real for us on the cross where our sins were taken upon him. And he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, as Isaiah says just a couple of chapters previous in Isaiah 53. This is how God brought peace to us and healed our wounds. In the encounter of listening and hearing, what we feast on is the promise of God to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, our reconciliation with God, the forgiveness of our sins, the magnitude of his love, the absolute dependability of God's faithfulness, so much so that God kind of jumps in on the sermon Right, right in the middle, um, in verse 8, he kind of takes over from Isaiah again, and he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Right? Isaiah got his word in edgewise, but God's like, he, I want back in on the speech here. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. God has more than any of the not-bread alternatives. His word does not return void. It bears fruit. It gives seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Again, very concrete realities for Israel. It does not return empty, but it accomplishes everything that God intends. That's the word of promise that we feast on. 
I think it's hard to have hope. The fires seem to burn so strongly when there's no wind of opposition, but then the slightest breeze of contest can nearly extinguish the flame. For me, it tends to wither in the concrete pressures of my corporate job, dis disappointments I harbor from my past, challenges in my relationships or in myself, unfulfilled dreams for myself and my family, prayers that appear to be unanswered, failures. These are things that make me thirsty. And of course, I have sinful responses for all of that. Those are concrete things. They're not full of poetry and metaphor. And, and actually, we're not trying to be sentimental here. God is inviting us to hear the word of promise for us. He is saying to us, my word of promise is always fulfilled. It always accomplishes its purpose. It always produces the results I intend to produce. And God is saying now, let me show you what I mean by that. So eating, if we want to say yes to this and we want to eat, what is that? Eating is stopping and quieting ourselves down and turning aside from our thoughts. Eating is listening until we hear the word of God. Eating is enjoying fellowship with him, experiencing his presence, delighting in him. Eating is hearing the word of invitation, the word of pardon, the word of promise. Eating is believing, which is made possible when we're with God. Our liturgy, of course, is meant to help us taste just a bit the gospel promise preached and believed, the Lord's Supper shared and eaten. Let's open our hearts this morning. Let's open our hands this morning. Let's lean in to receive what God alone can supply. In every good thing from God, he offers himself, and that's the source of our joy this morning. Amen.